Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants Inn Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. Hi, I'm Daniel Burke from 3D Solicitors, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Dos Santos, a barrister from Sergeants Inn. Uh, public inquiries are major investigations. They're convened by government ministers that can be gifted special powers to compel testimony and the release of other forms of evidence. The only justification required for a public inquiry is the existence of public concern about a set of events or or a series of events, and inquiries have addressed very wide-ranging topics, including terrorist attacks, fires and mismanagement. Alex, thank you for joining us again. It's great to have you back. The statutory public inquiries, do you want to give us a bit more detail about what these are and who, who they're conducted by? Uh, Yes, well, hello, Daniel. Um, The statutory inquiry is, at its um, most base form, an inquiry that's carried out in accordance with the Inquiries Act of 2005. And it's an act which creates a structure, a very formal structure, as to how public inquiries um, should be carried out. And as you've rightly said in the introduction, it is a minister who convenes that inquiry. And that minister will appoint the chair of the inquiry, who will ordinarily be a judge or a senior barrister. So you'll be familiar that the Grenfell inquiry that's currently taking place is being conducted by Sir Martin Moore Bick, who is a um, retired and um, now judge of the Court of Appeal. So you'll ordin- ordinarily find that there's a, a relatively senior judge who is appointed to um, carry out the inquiry. So how does a statutory public inquiry, uh, obvious question really, how does it differ from a non-statutory public inquiry? Um, well, the biggest difference is, is actually in the powers that the a statutory inquiry brings. So, for example, um, in a statutory inquiry, the chair has the um, legal power to compel witnesses to give evidence or to require evidence to be produced. That's not something that can be done in a non-statutory inquiry. Um, There are also very stringent legal safeguards. So there's a very clear structure in terms of how not just the chair, but any other panellists might be appointed, um, the terms of reference, And so it brings a great deal of structure and also, in some respects, protection um, for those who appear and engage with that inquiry. And I suppose that the other aspect that can make a big difference is that the public inquiry is, by its very nature, ordinarily going to be um, held in public, whereas a non-statutory inquiry might be held in public, but also in private. So looking at mechanics, who actually commissions the inquiry and who would set the terms of reference? Well, that will be the relevant um, government minister. Now, they'll be given some guidance by the Cabinet Office, but once the need for an inquiry has been found, ordinarily um, there will be a United Kingdom minister um, whose department is most concerned, who will then be the one who calls for the inquiry and and will then um, set out the terms of reference and decide who shall be the chairman uh, of that inquiry. Now... Public inquiries, they have uh, obviously certain 
powers they can make decisions uh, what how far can they go in terms of making decisions about criminal or civil liability well one thing they're not supposed to do is actually adjudicate on issues of civil and criminal liability now um inevitably there is going to be some crossover in the fact that the inquiry may be critical of individuals in a way that presses towards civil criminal litigation. We can come to that a little later on. Um, but it's um, it, within the statute itself, under Section 2, um, it's quite clear that the inquiry must not rule upon and doesn't have the power to determine um, someone's civil or criminal liability. Right. Now, they have powers, though. I, let's talk about the powers that an inquiry has to require a person to attend uh, to give evidence or produce documents. Yes, exactly. The, the, in a public inquiry, of course, the statute does give powers to require evidence to be produced. Um, and in all questions, you're not just looking at the Inquiries Act of 2005, but there are rules that have been brought in to um, sit alongside those, and that's the um, Inquiry Rules of 2006. Um, between the two of them, they set out the um, rules of evidence that, or the discretion as to evidence, um, but also the ability to um, require evidence to be provided. Okay. Now, we hear about core participants in public inquiries. Could you explain to our listeners first what is a core participant in a public inquiry and how would that differ to the status of a witness? So um, a witness is, um, of course, someone who's giving evidence before the inquiry and may, in fact, go to lawyers for assistance before giving evidence and may, in fact, be represented um, normally for the purpose of their evidence. But what they won't normally have is the ability to make opening and closing statements. They won't have necessary access to um, all of the evidence that's before the inquiry. They will have a very, very limited role within the inquiry itself. Whereas a core participant does have the ability to make opening and closing statements and will have a greater engagement ordinarily with counsel to the inquiry and the ability also to then, if need be, um, ask the counsel to inquire to ask questions of other witnesses as well. It may also, of course, make a, a difference in terms, practical terms, in, uh, for funding. Uh, oh, yes, of course. I mean, if you're a core participant, um, ordinarily funding will often be extended to um, provide a much greater legal service than you'd ordinarily have if you're just a witness. Yeah. Now, can a witness rely upon the privilege against self-incrimination in answering questions and or providing documents? Uh, yes, they can. I mean, in essence, although the court, or the, sorry, the inquiry can require um, a witness to answer evidence generally, it's sections 21 and 22 of the Act which preserve legal privileges and essentially say that where someone wouldn't have to answer questions in civil proceedings, they can't be compelled to answer questions in an inquiry. And that's, I suppose, particularly important because very often following an inquiry, there may be other proceedings. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that often well, may happen in an in inquiry is, and we've seen it in Grenfell, is that you may get a letter from the Attorney General stating that there will be no prosecution based upon 
the oral evidence given by a witness at the inquiry. And the reason why you get that immunity is to enable the public inquiry to fulfil its purpose. And you can see with Grenfell why it's so important that full information is provided because it looks towards a greater concern. It's worth noting, though, that the way in which um, letters um, such as that are given Often they refer to the evidence provided at the hearing and won't necessarily cover anything put in in writing or any further documents. So it's worth just being absolutely clear on the extent to which the Attorney General may give any assurance where something's provided voluntarily by a witness outside the contemplation of that letter. It would always be open to prosecuting authorities to look at that material and treat it as admissible or the basis for a prosecution down the line. So let's go back to mechanics. How is a public inquiry conducted? Well, essentially, that, that, that will often be set at the outset. So the first thing, and the most important thing, is to set the terms of reference, because they will determine the extent to which the inquiry will look at certain issues. So you, for example, will take Grenfell again as an example. That was broken into different sections to deal with different aspects of the events that unfolded in relation to the fire at Grenfell Tower. Uh, and so it might look, for example, at how event, at the fire took hold. The next bit might be, for example, contractors and so forth. So first of all, terms of reference make a big difference how it proceeds. The chairman has a great discretion in terms of the way in which matters will unfold. And quite often there'll be counsel to the inquiry who will then um, set a timetable. So people usually have a fairly good idea when they're likely to give evidence or when certain parts of the evidence are likely to be before the um, inquiry. Um, so uh, there is a great deal of discretion. I, mean, I would just say that each inquiry is going to be run differently because their subject matter will be different and quite often the chairman will be different. Alex, warning letters, uh, salmon letters, what are these? What, what should they contain? Who should be getting them? Right, so these are letters set out within the, the rules, uh, referred to within the rules as warning letters, but some are more colloquial known as salmon letters, and they've got different names. And in essence, the point of warning letters is to give advance notice to anyone who might be the subject of any criticism or if um, criticism may be inferred from the evidence. And the importance of it is that though first of all, witnesses aren't taken by surprise, um, they have an opportunity beforehand to take any legal protective measures should they be necessary. And it may influence whether or not a witness applies to the chairman of an inquiry with, um, to become a core participant. Mm-hmm. And quite an ordinary, yeah, an ordinary, if someone is likely to be criticised, um, they're likely to be made core participants in the first place. But where, for example, someone perceives that they may be subject to criticism, it's an important engagement at that stage to determine whether or not A, they ought to be and can be made a core participant. But also the warning letter itself will often indicate an an area that's going to be explored. So the warning letter is supposed to set out what the criticism or proposed criticism is and a statement of the facts that the chairman considers would substantiate the criticism or proposed criticism and in particular should refer to any evidence that supports it. This is all set out in Rule 15. Um, but the point of it really is to uh, for the person to really understand what it is they're going to be criticised of. And that the letter may be issued at any time if there's an early appreciation of the risk that it'll, it'll be sent before they give evidence. Um, it's possible that by the time that the report is reaching its end stage, 
if it's um, considered that in view of all of the evidence, um, one of the early witnesses might be subject to criticism, then even at that late stage before publication, a warning letter will be um, normally sent out. It's interesting that the, the, uh, there have certainly been inquiries where uh, salmon letters have gone even to people who may not face criticism. The, the Jimenezes case was an example of that. So, of course, some inquiries seem to really err on the side of caution, others not so much. Yes, I mean, without the warning letter, um, the report can't be critical. And whilst you don't, they're not sent out, you know, um, to anyone who might conceivably be criticised, where there's any base on which someone might be, then it's all ordinary, it's a normal course of event that the letters will be sent out. Now, Alex, you've handled many inquiries over the years, including some very large ones and extremely sensitive ones. For police officers listening to this podcast, if an officer receives a warning letter, what can he or she do? What would your advice be? Um, well, the first thing they need to do is go to their representatives and provide that letter and get some proper advice. The, the, pro- the problem with seeing a warning letter when you're an officer um, isn't just the same problems that an, um, a normal individual would face, because a warning letter um, will indicate that there is something that might call into question the officer's conduct. And quite apart from the inquiry itself, quite apart from any criminal action, um, it can be something which can indicate that there might be some interest down the line in terms of disciplinary action against them. There may be um, some complaint made, or if criticism is made of the officer, that might trigger at least an investigation being made. And it's just for those reasons that an officer is particularly susceptible where um, his or her conduct might be subject to criticism within inquiry. And it may be something they're not concerned about. It may be that they're just simply one person within a group of people and it's the overall conduct um, which isn't their particular concern. But it's something to be taken seriously early on. And the one thing I would say is it's not something to be left hanging or it's something to be acted on immediately because the sooner advice is received, the sooner the officer can start to consider the extent to which um, assistance is given to the inquiry and also the evidence that's given, just receiving advice on any statements provided um, and uh, essentially what they can expect from the inquiry. Yes, and uh, you mentioned earlier applying for core participant status if it appears that there is um, a risk of uh, criticism. This allows the advantage of one's more likely to get funding and opening closing speeches uh, and proper representation during it. On your point, actually becoming a core participant would actually unlock other evidence, which would be particularly important for an officer, where there may be a statement or another witness who's critical of that officer, and that may be early forewarning or something they may face in disciplinary proceedings. So it's quite useful to take advantage of that opportunity and make sure that they're fully forearmed um, before giving evidence. At least they have some idea as to what they may have to deal with down the line. Alex, thank you very much for joining us on that. I know it will be of interest to many officers who have either faced inquiries or have ongoing ones or may do so in the future or need to support colleagues going through the same. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand. 
Brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.